When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's great to have Caroline Webb on the podcast. Webb is an executive coach, author, and speaker who specializes in showing people how to use insights from behavioral science to improve their professional lives. Her book on that topic, How to Have a Good Day, has been published in 14 languages and more than 60 countries. She's also a senior advisor to McKinsey, where she was previously a partner. Caroline, so excited to talk to you today. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. So I decided I'm going to call this pod. I rarely have figured out the title of the podcast until the pod, I actually have the interview with the person, but I decided it's just too perfect. I'm going to call it How to Have a Good Day During a Global Pandemic. Well, there you go. <laughs> That's what we're all looking for right now, isn't it? Yes. It's because we're all looking for that. And it just feels perfect. I mean, you're the perfect person to talk about this with today. So I, I've, I'm so grateful to have you on the Psychology Podcast. Thank you. So you wrote this book, How to Have a Good Day, and, and you also do executive coaching where you, you help people have good days. And there's so many different aspects, as you know, to this field. Do you see some kind of rise to the, the top of the list of all, you know, there's a gratitude, there's, there's, there's uh, goal setting, there's, you know, <laughs> there's so many buzzwords, that, growth mindset, <laughs> you know, you know, everyone's got the words. Do you, do you see some that rise to the top that in priority during this really troubling time for so many people? That's a good question. I mean, there's a huge, wonderful toolkit out there and, you know, you're wonderful at bringing that to a, a wide audience. I really appreciate what you do in this, in this space. I do think there are three things that I'm seeing time and again coming up right now as being helpful and frankly that I'm using a lot. I think, you know, our, we, we know that compassion is a very powerful force. We don't always turn it on 
at the, you know, in the heat of the moment. And I think really understanding that the pressures that people are under, that, that, that sort of desire to feel secure in the midst of utter chaos. And it's not just the pandemic, of course, you know, there are all sorts of challenges that we always normally face in our lives, you know, the ups and downs and the uncertainties that we face, but also, you know, the environmental challenges that many are, are facing in their lives. And to recognize that that kind of stress is going to not bring out the best in most people and or in ourselves and to understand what our brains do under pressure and to be compassionate about that is the first step to actually being able to be centered in that moment. And then I think there's a real power in amplifying certainties in the midst of uncertainty. And then I think there's real power in directing attention more consciously knowing that we don't perceive absolutely everything around us at any given time, that we're actually always experiencing a subjective version of reality. What is it we choose to focus on in this moment when things are difficult? So those are the three things, compassion, certainties, and conscious attention. You can see I've got a little bit of alliteration there to help me remember. Oh, that's great. No, it's great. Does the conscious intention, does that, does mindfulness help with that? Does a regular mindfulness practice help with that? Well, I think regular mindfulness practice seems to help with just about everything, <laughs> right? You know, because it does reduce our reactivity to, to, to negative stimuli. You can see that there's more ability to reg self-regulate in the face of, of challenging situations. But I think with directing your attention, I think a lot of people aren't aware that the ingoing mental starting point for us, you know, whatever we have top of mind is going to drive what our brain believes is salient, is relevant enough for us to notice. So if we're in a bad mood and we go into a conversation, then we are naturally tuned to look out for everything that confirms that we're right to be in a bad mood. And so we utterly capable of, of focusing on the things that are annoying and, and completely blanking a nice comment or a nice suggestion that someone makes that, you know, just comes and goes. We don't even really remember hearing it. And so if you're experiencing a situation right now where you're reading a lot of bad news and you're naturally trying to stay on top of everything and, you know, you're, you're dutifully reading the data and you're kind of looking at how bad things are, I think the challenge is that then that attunes us, given what we know about selective attention and inattentional blindness and confirmation bias and so on, it, it tunes you to look out for other things that are bad. And so I, I'm not a believer in, you know, just asserting that life is amazing and therefore it will be. But I am aware that if you can just direct your attention to something that is positive in the environment around you, just like the, the nice leaf on the tree that's outside my window, then you can help to reset your perceptual filters to some extent. And that can make all the difference at times like this. Yeah. I, you know, I'm really interested in, in individual differences and I'm fascinated by people who a particular difference and, and tell me what if you've seen this in your own coaching there are some people who are pretty have pretty impenetrable walls there are people who don't seem to soak up the emotions of others as much they tend to no matter what comes down they can they don't let it in so much but then there are those who i would say more people like me who are very sensitive you know in the sense that even if i don't want to it's really hard for me to not feel the person I'm talking, you know, the emotions of the person I'm talking to, like, I can't not let it in because it's just my temper. It's my biological temperament, you know, but it, and, and I know it doesn't need to have to affect me cognitively. I think that I'm, I'm just, first of all, before I just go on, have you noticed that individual differences, you know, when you're, when you've been doing coaching? 
I have. I think, I think though, when you look at the data on emotional contagion, you know, people are more similar than they perhaps think. You know, we do see that contagion, you know, the mirroring of neural activity very readily when one person is expressing emotion. It's remarkable how much that transmits, even online, even in the kind of conversation that we have now. Uh, there's, there's interesting research on remote teams that suggests that even when they're only communicating by text, you can see emotions uh, seep out and, and, and cross boundaries and, and spread across a team. So I think, I think we're very leaky as humans. But yes, I think you, know, you have to know yourself and know that if you are especially susceptible, then you know, just know that what's around you is going to soak into your skin and into your mind and that it's, it's worth being very deliberate about taking a break and, and redirecting your attention to something more positive without being hokey about it. But just, you know, what is there that I can notice around me or notice, uh, you know, as I think about the day that I've had that would help to reset a little. What do you, what do you, what advice do you have in this particular moment in America? I know I, I, I hear something other than an American accent coming out of your mouth, uh, but uh, you, you probably are very aware with America's issues right now. Yeah. And I'm an American resident, so. And you are an American resident. What advice do you have for, for people that are so frustrated and, and quite frankly fed up with a lot of injustices they feel like they're experiencing in the world, in our country, who are maybe inhabiting as, as Abraham Maslow, my, one of my uh, mentors, I almost said, but you know, I never met him. You know, <laughs> but, but he is a mentor. He called it the D realm of human existence versus you know, the deficiency realm where you know, your, your whole world narrows. It's hard to see the beauty around you. you know, it's hard to just simply redirect versus the B realm, which is what it sounds like you're talking about, being realm of human existence where you, know, you don't try to change the world, you're, you, you admire the beauty of the things without you know, trying to change it, and, um, and you love, be love for humanity. But for some people, it's not easy to have so much love for someone who's beating you down. So yeah, I just would love to hear some of your thoughts about this moment. Mm, yeah. It's a good question. It's funny. It was, it was reading your book that made me realize how much Maslow's thinking on this has permeated the work that many of us are doing in the uh, space of uh, you know, well-being and resilience. Um, you know, I talk a lot about getting people out of or getting yourself out of defensive mode and into discovery mode, which is you know, an, uh, analogous to the idea of shifting from a deficiency focus to a being focus. And I, I do think that one thing that's coming up a lot right now and that I'm using and that I'm helping other people use is a focus on what you can control and acceptance of what you can't. Now, of course, that's hardly new. That's not new knowledge. That is, you know, that is old wisdom. You know, when you think about the fact that we all crave a feeling of competence and autonomy, it's important for our self-esteem, our sense of self-worth to feel that we have a degree of ownership in in what's uh, what's happening to us. Sometimes when we are in a very, very uncertain state, we focus completely on what we can't control. But and actually, we forget that there are there's quite a bit that we can control. And it may be that we have no idea what's going to happen next politically, environmentally, in health terms. But we can focus on how we choose to live today. What are the choices we make today? We can choose 
to decide to go for a walk. Now, you might say, actually, you can't even do that because the air quality is terrible and maybe you're under, under quarantine. I think we're very, very conscious of the constraints. Okay, so knowing yourself, what do you know gives you a little bit of a boost? What is it that gives you a sense of, what is it that gives you a sense of pleasure? And for me, comedy is really, really powerful. Okay, so I can be very deliberate about bringing some comedy into my day. I can, you know, I can watch things that I know will reliably make me laugh. I know that that will feed back through the, you know, the, the, the sort of strange synchronicity of mind and body. I know that the sheer fact of laughing forces me to take diaphragmatic breaths, which then calms me. And the point is that there are these sort of very deliberate things we can do to shape our lives, even when we are feeling like there's nothing that we control. And that's, that's, that's the thread that I'm pulling, you know, whether it's a business leader trying to figure out how to create some sense of what's going to happen, even if they don't know what the outcome is, they can talk about what the process is to figuring out the outcome, or whether it's you know, a working parent at home just tearing their hair out with trying to figure out schooling to focus on, okay, well, what can I do in the next half an hour that I think is going to be a positive step? That's the kind of conversation that's coming up again and again right now. You told me back backstage that sometimes people imagine that because you write about having good days and building a good life, that you look, that you must look through the rose, look through, look at the world <laughs> through a rose tinted spectacles, you know? And then you also told me others, I think you should be more bullish, like how to have a great, awesome day every day. <laughs> exactly. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. But your approach, your very measured approach, I'm listening to you. It seems like you, you like to look with clarity and equanimity at both what's hard and what's possible. So is this sort of a, a realistic form of optimism? Yes, exactly. That's, um, you know, it, it's funny, you know, there are some things, of course, we develop as we as we get older and, and you know, we, we, we hopefully accumulate wisdom as we experience the world. But there's something really strange about this. You know, I go back to my, uh, there was a yearbook when I was 17 and I wrote that my life philosophy was realistic idealism. And I, it's interesting to, to see that still really at the center of everything I do. I mean, I, I now call it reali realistic optimism. I think I, you know, I'm optimistic about human nature. I'm optimistic about the opportunities we have to make a difference in our own lives and in other people's lives. I'm also realistic about the fact that there is also luck and there are challenges and, you know, shit happens. And so I'm definitely, you know, treading this middle ground all the time and helping people see what's possible while acknowledging what's tough. So, yeah, that's very central to my central to, to everything that I do in my in my coaching and in my writing, actually. You know. Abraham Maslow, actually, not to keep bringing him up over and over again, but, <laughs> but my listeners of the Psychology Podcast are no stranger to me bringing him up over and over again. But he called himself a realistic optimist. So he called himself. So, you know, and, uh, and I like to think of myself similarly. And so we're all in this kind of me, you, Abraham Maslow, kind of this realistic optimism club. There are a lot of people in this field who are just straight up happy, happy, happy. I mean, there, there are people who like that. And there are people who love people like that. So maybe, you know, it's like, look, the world's a big place. It, what resonates with you? What style resonates with you? I, I'm, I'm much more in my life in, interested in understanding than condemning. So that's fine. You know, if there are people who they all go to their happy, happy, happy conferences together and they're all happy, happy, happy together, go be amongst yourselves. Leave me alone. <laughs> 
absolutely. No, I think that's right. You know, different strokes and all that. I, I, I am definitely not going to be, you know, there are some people who are going to find me too, too grounded and too real, realistic, you know, or too, I mean, they would see it perhaps as sort of being too, not being bold enough. I do remember I was speaking at a, a, a big conference, thousands and thousands of attendees, and um, the green room was a fun place to, to hang out. There were lots of different types of speakers there. And that was really evident. There was, a, there was a speaker there who was what you would call, I guess, a motivational speaker. And, you know, she had a certain story and she was very excited to say that her message was that, you know, you could have anything you wanted. You just had to believe in it hard enough. And I said, I must admit, I normally I just sort of, you know, nod and say sort of centered at the moment. But then, you know, at that time, Aleppo was being bombed in Syria. And I, it was, I was very conscious of the news. And I said, well, I'm not sure the kids in Aleppo would agree. And so, you know, there you are. It's, you know, we've got this, you and I believe that perhaps where you're born does have an effect on what your chances are in life. We also believe that what you can do with what you've been given is, is often more than we realize. So I think it's possible to, to have both things in your mind. I think that's right. It, we don't, it's not an either or. I, I do get that a lot. These individuals who are suffering, it's not like they need to wait till some magical moment where there's zero suffering in there, or any of us. None of us need to wait till there's this magical moment that probably will never come where we're just everything is just zero percent suffering to, to work towards beauty and connection and the things that will help lift us out of these psychological states. And there are certainly environmental barriers. But, you know, I, I, I say, as I say to people, if Victor Frankl could find some joy in the concentration camps, then sh you sure as hell can as well. <laughs> I was just about to say that. And also, you know, when you think about the Stockdale paradox, yeah, you know, the Walter Stockdale, the, the prisoner of war, same message, you know, that he noticed that the people who survived being in a concentration camp were those who were able to both hold the possibility of release alongside recognizing the reality of, of what was going on. And that if you were purely optimistic or purely pessimistic that they were the people around him that that he noticed not doing so well. And so, yes, I, you know, absolutely. And, you know, I regret having kind of, you know, reacted by saying what I said about Syria, because I think, you know, she has a very, very important message and a message of possibility and hope is a really, really powerful one. I think that there are, as you say, very different ways to get that out in the world. And, you know, I think it's great that there are perhaps different, different styles and different messages that take that message out in the world. I love that. Oh, good. We're like on some more pages. Something that, that connection you made to me in one of our discussions is that it was with the field of mental contrasting, which is a hot, hot area of inquiry in our field. Could you maybe talk a little about what mental contrasting is and, and how that can help some people have a good day right now during global pandemic? Well, it's a practical application of everything we've just been talking about, isn't it? The work uh, driven significantly by Gabrielle Ertingen and um, Peter Gorwitz. The idea being that we know that having a goal makes you much more likely to move forward. That's, you know, basic neurobiology. We also know that people can get derailed really easily when something doesn't go as intended. And so research has shown, again and again, quite a range of different settings, as, as you know, that if you are both clear-eyed about your goal and your dream, your vision, your hope, and also think about the realism of the challenges you're going to face, 
And ideally then, not just that, which is sort of, you know, realistic optimism or uh, mental contrasting of the ideal with the challenges, but then you also think about implementation intentions. So you think, okay, well, when that, when that road bump and, and I encounter each other, <laughs> this is what I will do. I mean, so, you know, you have this when then plan, when this happens, then I will do. And, and that really helps you. I mean, you know, there's a kind of non-pandemic-y kind of example, which is if you want to exercise or there's something that you want to, maybe it's sort of you want to practice your French, then having a cue for what that is, you know, whether it's the, the, the sneakers by the side of the bed or, you know, that is helpful. But it's even more helpful if you can say, when it's raining and I don't feel like leaving the house, then I will grab my umbrella. <laughs> And, you know, just the sheer fact of having that plan makes a dramatic difference to your chances of actually leaving the house and, and getting, getting the thing done that you said you wanted to do. I have sabotaging if-then plans, such as if I have an if-then plan that becomes activated that says, go to the gym now, then eat chocolate. <laughs> Has anyone ever brought that case up to you about having meta self-sabotaging if-then plans? Well, I think, you know, let's go back to compassion. Maybe that's fine. Maybe it's okay. You know, maybe it's okay to say, you know what, I'm going to go to the gym. It's going to be fantastic. I'm going to feel really energized. And I really love chocolate. And I'm going to, you know, enjoy that. So I'm not, you know, I, I, I don't judge. I, I think whatever works. And, you know, chocolate is fantastic. Let's be honest. Yeah, it is, but it doesn't, doesn't work in terms of my goal of health. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, th then there's a kind of, okay, when I have a craving for chocolate, then what is your alternative plan? I mean, do you have, is there a, is there a little, little routine, little subroutine that you could launch at that moment, do you think? The best thing for me is to not even open the door at all. So I just don't have any chocolate around. Yeah. Yeah. I just, the, I've learned for me, the best thing to curb something is to just not have the stimulus anywhere anywhere in your insight and that's i mean that's another strand that's emerged from the research isn't it that you know you're much better off trying to change your environment than trying to change what's inside your head it's just you know it's easier you, you make it easier to take to make automatically good choices if you make it if you change your environment so i yeah i think that's very smart i think well done that's excellent <laughs> Yay! <laughs> a lot of self-help books have this kind of attitude of you can have anything you want if you just believe in it enough. Now, books like The Secret and stuff, what's wrong with that? Is that not grounded in science? There's a kernel of truth, right? You know, I touched on it earlier on. It's about selective attention. It's the fact that if you, whatever is top of mind will help to tell your brain what is salient enough for you to be consciously aware of. You're recognizing we can only process a certain amount of information at any given time. So yes, if you decide that, uh, well, actually I have, a, I have an experience that you know, I'm sure could be described in secret-like terms. Uh, I remember when I got certified as a coach, I was actually really just doing it as an add-on to my work as a, I was a partner at McKinsey, the consulting firm, and I was doing a lot of organizational change work. And I thought it'd be really helpful if I could, you know, be really more skilled in talking to to the leaders about how to, you know, be their best selves so that they could, you know, create great environments for other people. So, you know, I thought it would just be an add-on. And then I 
did this course and I thought, oh no, <laughs> this is a bit tricky because actually it turns out I love this. This is what I'm born to do. And now what am I going to do? I don't want to give up my, you know, nice job with my lovely colleagues. And But I'm clearly not going to be able to be a partner at McKinsey and, and be an executive coach at the same time. But, you know, I, I thought, okay, well, what have I got to lose? If I'm going to leave, then I will see what I can do to, you know, tell as many people as I can that this is what I want to do. I want to be, I want to do more coaching. And it was really ridiculous. I mean, I didn't do a vision board, but by telling everybody what I wanted and being alert and having it top of mind and therefore noticing what was around me as a, as a possibility, within three weeks, I was starting to bring coaching into my, it was actually a colleague who said, could you teach all of our younger colleagues how to be better coaches? And I thought, oh, okay, yes. And then three weeks after that, another colleague came to me and said, oh, you know, I've got, you know, this executive team of 18 people. It's far too big. You know, he was one of the only other certified coaches in the firm. And he said, well, what if we, we then split this and I'll take nine of them and you take nine of them. And then suddenly I had almost a full coaching practice. There's definitely a version of the story, which is I just had to believe and then it was real. But mm, that's not really true. I mean, what happened was that, you know, I was conscious of this. So I looked out for opportunities that would have otherwise missed. And I also told everybody this is what I was trying to do. So did I attract that to me? I mean, kind of. But if I'd said to myself, frankly, you know, if you go into a conversation with someone, you're expecting them to be a jerk. The same mechanism means that you will also, you know, notice that you know, everything that they say is annoying. So this mechanism is in play, but the idea that you can just change everything by dreaming of it is patently unclear. I mean, if I had said, I would love to be an astronaut, which is what I wanted to do when I was 14. I wanted to work in ground control. I didn't actually want to be an astronaut. I wanted to work in NASA ground control, which is a British schoolgirl at a state school was a sort of surprising goal. That's a badass dream. <laughs> <laughs> I was really into, really into physics. Uh, yeah. So, you know, if I had said, if I'd done this course and then decided I wanted to be an astronaut, would it, would, would it just been, you know, a question of believing? No, of course not. So, you know, I think the idea that it's just belief and, you know, you just have to be sort of firm and strong enough in, in your belief is, is patently not right. But I think, you know, being clear on what you want and being deliberate in where you put your attention, sure. You know, there, there is some truth in that. Yeah, there is a grain of truth there. You know, it shows the importance of setting intentions and, and really believing that what you want to do is possible. That seems to be what the, what the key there is, is just even like diluting yourself sometimes can be a helpful start. But in the long, in the long run, delusion doesn't tend to fare out well. Right. You, you've got to pay attention to, you've got to pivot. You've got to notice what's working and you've got to adapt. And, you know, that's, that's what I see in the professionals who are most, most thoughtful and successful in, in their lives in, in these challenging times is that they are not shy. They're not egotistical about perhaps being wrong about what they thought was going to happen. They're able to say, you know what? Huh? Okay. I, I had this really strong idea and it turns out not to be true. So I guess we'll do something else and let's talk about what that might be. Well, this is cool. Let's double click on executive coaching and unpack that more because I just entered the world of coaching myself. Just joined the Flow Research Collective and I'm now a flow coach. And so this is a new world for me and I'm loving it. 
and it's uh, it's almost like I'm hooked. <laughs> I'm hooked. It's uh, there's something there's something really uh, with my dopamine or serotonin something activated when I feel like I'm helping a person have a great insight about themselves, or I'm helping them cut out things once and for all that they've wanted to cut. Out. Basically, I like watching people do all the things that I don't necessarily do myself. <laughs> no, <I'm joking>. <laughs> <laughs> it's inspirational to me <laughs> to help someone. It, it's funny. I'm, I'm, I think I'm better at helping others sometimes than I am helping myself. But anyway, that's a whole other story for psychoanalysis. <laughs> yes, we'll talk about that next um, time. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I really, I'd love to, because I, I'm hooked on this, co- this coaching thing, and I was very skeptical of it before. You know, I was skeptical of it because I did see some, what they call themselves, positive psychology coaches. And some positive psychology coaches made me cringe, to be quite frank, because they weren't grounded in science whatsoever. And, I mean, they didn't have, like, PhDs or even master's degrees. And they maybe took one psychology class in college. And then and then they certify, I'm a certified coach, you know, with this dodgy organization that gave you one hour of training. So, as you can see, that's why I was skeptical. But... There's so much in the coaching world. So many people that I'm noticing are pretty awesome and legit. And so I'm not as skeptical anymore. So, yeah. So let's double, let's double click on, on, let's double click on what you do because maybe that's, I'm a folk, maybe I could aspire to an executive coach someday. Well, it's still an emergent discipline. I mean, it's only been around for a few decades. Interestingly, I think really the roots of modern professional, uh, and life coaching came out of East Allen, you know, in the, the human potential movement. Certainly in Europe, John Whitmore was absolutely central to, to bringing humanistic psychology into a form of support that, you know, we now call, we call coaching. And, you know, this idea that if therapy is about mental health and is about helping to address pathologies, Coaching is about, you know, taking someone who's fundamentally mentally well and helping them be their best self and, you know, help them remove barriers to being their best self more often. And that is very satisfying work because you're helping someone on the kind of journey that you talk about, you know, which is a journey towards self-actualization and transcendence, right? And and in the professional realm, you know, you, you hear terms like leadership coaching, actually, you know, I work a lot with leaders, not always, you know, big corporate leaders. You know, people can be leaders of all sorts at all ages in all sorts of informal ways. So I, the work that I do focuses a lot on helping people who are trying to move a system. So I coach, um, for example, someone who is trying to figure out a way to get funding to support African students who often don't get uh, student funding because people perceive them to be too poor uh, risks. And actually, the, the, the evidence is very clear that they are actually fantastic bets for a bank to lend to. And so there is this young entrepreneur who I help to think about, you know, how does she, how does she build a system around this? How does she build a, an organization around this? And, you know, she's got a very small organization. At the other end of the scale, I will coach a CEO of a very large company who is trying to do, you know, something interesting on a global level. There's more commonality than you might think. You know, in both cases, you have to help uh, help them manage themselves under pressure and help them find their path. And you have to help them get the best out of the people around them. And that is just such privileged, wonderful work. I just love it. I really do. 
Where, where, what's your training to get there? Like, what is your background? Do you, do you have a PhD in psychology? I don't. I mean, there's a part of me that sort of, you know, I think, oh gosh, you know, when you, when you talk about people who aren't, uh, you know, don't have PhDs. Well, you certainly I actually, don't need one. You certainly don't need one to be a good one. It's probably not interesting to anyone else, but as it happens, I had a, so I, I did not know that psychology even existed. I was full on on physics, math kind of, you know, that was the path you know, go into astrophysics. And then I, I had to take a class in economics because of the way that the curriculum, that the schedule <laughs> works, uh, just, you know, just how it, how it worked out. Um, and it blew my mind. Uh, I just thought, oh my gosh, this idea that you could be rigorous about human potential uh, and structured and thinking about human motivations. Wow. Wow. And that was it. That was, I was 16. Um, and so that was, that was a complete, um, a, a complete pivot. And, uh, and then I, you know, was, was working towards being a professional, I was an economist, a professional economist for the first decade of my, my, uh, career. Um, and what happened over time was that I realized I wasn't really very wild about academic economics. I found the orthodoxy in economics back, back then the eighties and nineties behavioral revolution hadn't really broken. And in the end, I I was two years into uh, you know working towards a DPhil at Oxford, and I said I can't. I just this is you know I was missing the psychology. I didn't even know I I needed and wanted. So in the end, you know I I had to think about what would be a creative way to to get back to my original interest, which was a sort of human science. And um, <laughs> I know it's not the most obvious path, but then you know I I ended up going to going into management consulting, uh, thinking, well, at least I can work on organizational change and leadership here. And then, you know, did, did my coaching certification, did some additional courses in psychology and neuroscience, um, big autodidact. Uh, I read a lot. Um, I read a lot. <laughs> and, you know, if you have an understanding of statistics and also some humility about what you can and can't understand then you know and you i sort of developed a little bit of a panel of of wonderful scientists to to go to and say well hang on how does this work and and so i would you know have a couple of neuroscientists that i would go to and say well you know tell me again like how does this like, so so the amygdala really isn't the fit center now right so it's a it's an attentional signaling kind of device okay right so you know it's over the years i'm just very honest about what I do and don't know and what I can and can't say. Um, and in a way, you know, I, I, I'm in this sort of translational space between, between the research and, and the practice. And I, I hope it helps me to make the science simple enough for people. But I'm very, very, very attentive to knowing my boundaries and what I can and can't say. Well, you have a lovely attitude. And I, I do want to clarify, I've noticed that there's not a very strong correlation between the high level degree you have in your coaching effectiveness and some of the greatest coaches are those that in a lot of ways are very well read, you know, of, of uh, a lot of the science, but I, I do have a critical lens towards those who are coaches that aren't interested in science whatsoever. That's, I, I feel like that's what I wanted to zoom in on was that point, you know, I have encountered some who are just so, supremely confident that whatever enters their head is brilliant no no need to challenge anything that enters their head because it's just everything you know i know the way for everyone so and in my writing i'm just attentive to 
replication issues. I, there were several, I mean, I had several filters for what I put in the book, how to have a good day. Um, it, one of them was, do I do this myself? Second, you know, is this something I've seen work across many different cultures and situations? And third was, you know, is the science here not just cute or fun, but kind of distinctly, you know, robustly replicable? And there were some areas where I got early early notice that there were some issues. And I'm very glad that I actually decided to take them out uh, of the book. You know, the, uh, there was a sort of the big debate on willpower that was just starting to break. Debates on some of the some of the mind-body loop material, for example. There were a number of areas where I was close enough to the research that I was able to say, you know what, I'm not sure where this is going. So I'm going to going to be careful about, you know, what I say about this right now knowing that I myself am not at the cutting edge. so And I mean, it must feel really good knowing that your work is being taught at top institutions around the country. My friend and colleague, Jonathan Haidt, I sat in on his class once at NYU Business School, and he's going on and on about Caroline Webb's. Did you all read the, the chapter assignment of the week from Caroline, Caroline Webb's book? And, you know, it, it must, there must be a, a good feeling there knowing that um, you're very well respected amongst the top people in the field of positive psychology. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, that I do love that John teaches that that class, uh, you know, uh, around, uh, you know, with, with, with my book sort of so, so much at the center of it. I, I, one, one of my favorite things is actually joining the last class of that, that semester and then taking questions from all the students who say, yes, but is this really possible? Can you really, can you really do this? Really do that? I mean, honestly, really? And then, you know, we talk about realistic optimism, what you can do within constraints. <laughs> So you, you've worked with all different sorts of populations. And another thing I like about your approach is well, it's not only do you respect the science and try to read about the science, but you don't try to dumb it down. You, you, you don't want to insult the intelligence of the people you're working with. Now, you told me backstage that you've worked with prison officers on Rikers Island. I mean, first of all, what was that experience like? <laughs> like were you nervous at all? Like, are you, are you nerves of steel over there, Caroline Webb? Yes. No, I'm not. I mean, I'm a normal person. You know, it's it's a really strange place. You know, you go across uh, across the bridge, to the island, and it's a very it's a very stark location. And the, you know, I was working in this in the UK. We call them porter cabins. I don't know what they're called, shipping container type of you know type of situation. So you know, I had all of these materials, which are clearly not going to work. <laughs> you know, in in this setting. But yeah, I mean, I I've seen I, I've worked. With very broad populations, that what is so interesting is that the same ideas. I mean, we're all human. We all have the same hardware and software inside. I think the the idea of helping people understand that is normal to feel stressed and that it's to help them understand the basics of what's going on. The fact that there's depression in the activity in the prefrontal cortex when you feel that you know you're you're dealing with uncomfortable negative stress. Um, and that that is going to have an effect on your your capacity for reasoning and self-control and forward thinking. And then, you know, normalizing that feeling of stress and, and loss of self in that moment and then giving them, helping them discover a few simple techniques to get back to who they are uh, and to, you know, to reduce the state of alert and then to shift them towards something more generative. That is work that crosses boundaries. And there was no, yes, these these were... These were, you know, people who didn't have more than a high school education. In some cases, you know, maybe not even that. But there was no issue with their ability to wrap their head around this uh, at all. 
it was very satisfying to see that. You're inspiring me to really deepen my own coaching practice. So I'm yeah, I'm getting into it. I'm really getting I feel like I'm entering this new stage of my life. So it's it's Oh fantastic. I think anybody will be very, very lucky to spend time with you. Uh, thank you. Helping them on their, their journey really to transcendence. Thank you. It's, I was so apprehensive. I was like, what can I possibly offer like an Olympic athlete? You know what I mean? Like with Scott Barry coughing. But I think I sell myself short sometimes because I start to have this conversation and they're like, wow, that's really uh, insightful. You know, I can apply that to my life. And I'm like, wow, maybe I can, maybe I can make a change. You know, it's like, you know, it, 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 once I started doing it, I was like, wow, I can do that. I can do this, you know? Yes, you absolutely can. You're a great listener and you've got great presence when you're with people, you know, that you, you, you look, you look for what you can see and what they're saying that you can build on. And actually, you know, people don't get a lot of that in their lives of someone truly properly paying attention to them. You know, sometimes when I'm teaching people about, um, you know, you can call it extreme listening or the power of actually properly paying attention. There was one time I was doing this with a bunch of um, partners of a private equity firm who were trying to figure out how to be more supportive to the CEOs of the companies that they they owned. And so we were talking about conversational quality and presence, you know, uh, to help 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 people feel really supported. And when I was demonstrating the technique of properly paying attention and just saying, so that's interesting. What do you mean by that? And say more about that. Just the kind of basics. They, they thought <laughs> I was really? flirting. Because it was the only, only flirt frame of reference that they had for someone paying as much attention to another human being. And it's the basis of coaching skill is that quality of attention. And you definitely have that. That means so much to me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. I'm definitely fired up. I'm definitely fired up. It, it, it's like a compound interest, you know, just even one or two, you start to see, oh my gosh, you, you can really change people's lives. Much more than writing peer-reviewed academic journal article, waiting a year for it to get published, and then four people in your field read it. I'm addicted more to like actually helping a human. Yeah, I mean, you know, I couldn't do the work that I do without all the people around the world pushing the envelope slightly in this piece. You know, I was, there was I was having a little dialogue yesterday with someone who's doing some work on the peak end effect, and yeah, you know, I'm I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to this postdoc for doing this work. I mean, thank goodness. Uh, and then I can say, okay, well, you know, what does that mean for the advice that I give about how people end their days? You know, and it's you need both. You need, and if you can do both in a life then that's wonderful. Embrace both. Yeah. Awesome. Can't wait to hear more. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I, you know, I've devoted the past 20 years of my life to rigorous peer reviewed scientific articles and all that. So maybe it's just, I'm just now lit, I'm lit up for a new chapter. So I'd like to end this amazing interview we're having here today with a little bit of a personal thing about you because you're, you don't often talk about your immense creativity but you've got it going on. You've got it going on, Caroline Webb. So here's some recent highlights. You've recently, you sang at Carnegie Hall with your choir half a dozen times, danced in the closing ceremony of the London 2012 Olympics, made crazy costumes with spare fabric, safety pins and spray paint for Burning Man, and many other things. People just don't know this about you. Well, they do now. <laughs> yeah, they do. You do. A very large number of people uh, will now know this about you. Hello, everybody. Yeah. I mean, it's it's funny. I think, you know, as a kid, I was I was very, um, very tuned into all of that. And then I sort of drifted away from it 
um, you know, got into my very analytical work. And I mean, music was always the common thread, I will say. That was always there. Uh, you know, I was in bands from the age of 11, not very good ones, let's be clear. But uh, um, but yeah, you know, uh, singing for me, I, I was a pianist uh, until, you know, up to a certain age. But, uh, you know, singing has been the thing that's really taken over for me. But I think what what for me has emerged is just it's one of the best places to go for that state of total immersion and absorption and that feeling of losing yourself. It's sort of my meditative practice and you know let's be honest you know i'm at, at my stage of life some of that you know artistry comes through diy you know through sanding a piece of wood until it's just exactly you know exactly the right uh the right shape um but yeah and, and i've over the over the years i've brought more and more of that i've been braver and bolder in bringing that into my practice so i have seen um, how much you can unlock someone's insight and connection with people around them by, I mean, even just getting them to pick an image to be a prop to telling their life story rather than just doing it purely through words uh, or getting them to model their vision for where they want to be in 10 years' time, to get them to you know, model it using children's clay uh, and to see what emerges from that, the different quality of conversation is really special. Truly special. And I imagine in your coaching, you're, you help you help people with their exploration and creativity. Yeah. And of course, you know, I'm very dry about it. I say, well, this is going to, you know, uh, engage different parts of your brain. You will help. You will see different insights. And, you know, I'm not I try to make sure it's not woo woo. Uh, they understand that there's a real process there that's 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 going to take them to a different place. But yeah, you know, I'm very lucky to, I'm very happy to say that people have been willing to go there, you know, especially, you know, with a smile on their face. Well, SBK, that's why I refer to myself in third person. SBK has wanted to for a very long time to be a burner, to be a burning man. So uh, when this goal pandemic's over, maybe me and you can can party up in Burning Man and we can One make... of the things that I do is to help people go for the first time. So I'm, I have spreadsheets, I have lists, I, I guess. So it, it is actually something every year, even when I don't go, I try to kind of support two or three new people going. So, you know, I, I'm happy to. That's awesome. I have a lot of friends who are, whatever the word is, burners, whatever, uh, burners. And they're like, Scott, like, how are you not a burner? You know, and it's like, okay, well let's not have a global pandemic you know and <laughs> yeah i mean i think you know what's so wonderful about burning man is the feeling of non being you're in a non-judgmental environment and you know there was a piece i wrote for behavioral scientist um yeah i don't know it was about a year ago uh molly crockett the neuroscientist and i are good friends and you know we we think a lot about the the behavioral science that sits behind why burning man is 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 quite a you know is a very interesting experience and a lot of the things that we know about living a good life are present there and you know a lot of people who just focus on the sort of you know some press press reports about uh hedonism are very surprised to hear about this. No, actually, you know, the collective endeavor, the building something together, the sense of gifting, the feeling of not being judged, all of this, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a very interesting Petri dish for people like you and me who are interested in thriving. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. Hey, Caroline, thank you so much for being on the Psychology Podcast and helping all my listeners as well as me. Uh, have a good day. Wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes and subscribe to the Psychology Podcast YouTube channel as we're really trying to increase our viewership on YouTube. In fact, many of these episodes are in video format on YouTube, so you'll definitely want to check out that channel. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.